Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KUS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today Matthew Worsner returns to the show to give us another history lesson. In In Re Garland, the Supreme Court said the power thus conferred is unlimited with the exception stated. It extends to every offense known to law and may be exercised at any time after its commission, either before legal proceedings are taken or during their pendency or after conviction and judgment. This power of the president is not subject to legislative control. It doesn't get any more unequivocal than that. That holding has not been overturned. So that is the law. The history of the presidential pardon, its evolution from the founding of the United States through the present day and its implications for our future. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Book clubs are fun for a lot of reasons. They're an excuse to read something new, something you might not have picked up on your own. They are a great opportunity to visit with friends. But what if you could invite the smartest, most insightful people you can think of to have a candid conversation about a great book? That's what I get to do on the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and you're invited. He really was able to convey the message in a way that gets to your heartstrings. We can really see that he is a scientist, but he's also a person who loves what he is studying. He's a scholar and a humanist, and and I think that's his greatest achievement. And then it's like, punch, punch, oh my gosh, what? So you have this like visceral, emotional connection to the poem, and it's because of the way he's linguistically playing with language Let's talk about sex, because, of course, in the original book... Um, <laughs> Stan and I have always longed for someone to say that to both of us on the radio. <laughs> A dream come true. Yeah, right. yeah. Thank you. Right. The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast, coming soon from Iowa Public Radio. It's time to start reading. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Matthew Worstner's back today to give me another history lesson, this time about the history of the presidential pardon and how its accepted limitations have shifted over time, leaving some big questions for the country going forward. Here is that conversation. So um, you're on for the fourth time, and I know you're very proud about that because nobody's <laughs> ever been on the show four times. You're, I will. You're more excited than I am. Oh, so you lost your excitement once we once you actually hit a record. You just no, you made up these. Uh, you trying know. to sound cool. Oh, okay. All That's right. Well, well, I will say uh, I, I don't have a coffee. I always have a coffee when I do the show. But uh, I I went to Starbucks before this. I don't actually like Starbucks. I hate that I like a Starbucks drink. But Frankie got me onto these uh, brown sugar oat milk things that Ooh, they that have there. Good. It's the only thing I like there. So I went in line and they didn't have oat milk. And so I said, all right, never mind. And so <laughs> then I left? sat in line, and it took me about 10 minutes to get out, and I don't have a coffee now. So the whole point of the story is you're going to have to be extra exciting today. You know, you're know, you going to have to keep me awake. That That's a first-world problem if I've ever heard of one. <laughs> and I'm the one that's supposed to be the fantastic <laughs> complainer. 
Well, oh boy. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm embarrassed about the whole thing, honestly. But uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna air it. I usually have a a large water bottle that I knock over 20 minutes into the it's show. True. So we're we're both out of our element today. We 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 know we're pushing ourselves to do new yeah. things. We don't want it to get stale. You know how the Beatles were innovators in music. Yeah. We're radio innovators. This is like us going to India. Absolutely. You know. So anyway, um, just to give a little uh, clarity, you are a lawyer. Yes, that's what they tell me. And before we get to the actual topic, I'm going to hold on to it, even though I probably will have introduced it by now. But you, as a lawyer, I assume have some kind of inherent faith in the legal system of the country. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I And I was kind of going to get into this later. I'm not the biggest fan of the Constitution um, for a variety of different reasons, but it works for the most part. I get it. And there's 300 and some million people who are subject to it that it works for, I don't know, most of the time, I guess. And it's the system we've had for 300 years, approximately. So yeah, I, th- I think it, it works, I guess. So to segue then to what you're here to talk about, I mean, the what makes the legal system at least ostensibly work is the appeal system, right? That there's kind of endless checks and balances up to a point. Um, more than just appeals, because that's just Article Three. That's just the judiciary. But there's checks and balances in Article One and Article Two. The the president and Congress flipped those around. But um, the system is designed so that there's not one particular person who can be in charge of anything and everything. Trying to get away from King George the Third kind of thing. Um, the the different co-equal branches are supposed to have the ability to be a check on each other. And sometimes it seems like one is more or less powerful than the other, but I I think it does ebb and flow um, to an extent. And sometimes you hear a lot about the Supreme Court and then they're really quiet and then you hear a lot about Mitch McConnell and then he's really quiet. So it but at the end of the day, they all have their own function to do. Yeah, but I mean, like, so what? What makes it different than certain other other uh, countries, maybe, is the fact that there are different levels. So, like, if you don't like the ways that a ruling goes, in theory, you can appeal it. You can have several trials on the same case. Yeah, I suppose that's correct. I mean, in the context of the justice system, you know, if you don't think what the trial court did was correct you have the ability to go to the Court of Appeals. And if you don't think what the Court of Appeals did was correct, you have the ability to go to the Supreme Court. Those different levels have different names throughout the country. Um, And then if you still don't think that what happened was correct, in some cases you have the ability to petition the big-ass Supreme Court um, in Washington, D.C. for a redress. So for the most part, at a minimum, there's, there's four separate levels of judges who could hear your case. Um, there's there's different state law complexities to go through the system, but I would say generally speaking, that's that's a safe overview. And that's partially why you should have faith that at some point, even if there is a bad decision somewhere along the way, just the amount of people that in theory could look at any case keeps some degree of faith that things will correct themselves. Yeah, and, and nothing's perfect. Um, but for the most part, there are so many different levels of review that a case can go through, it's hard to pull the wool over the eyes of one judge, let alone three judges, let alone eight judges, so on and so forth. There's always going to be things that slip through the cracks, and there's always issues with access to justice. But the way the system is designed is to prevent failures 
and miscarriages of justice. But if a president who does not need a single day of legal training, does not need to have met a lawyer, watched a YouTube video on any kind of constitutional law, uh, if a president just decides, you know, I'm going to pardon the, ti- the Tiger King because I've heard of this show, that's that's totally fine. Yeah, the president can do that. Yeah, and that th- that seems to be... I don't know anything about the history of the pardon. That's what you're here to tell me about today. But to me, it feels like it's kind of, I guess you can make the argument it's a check on the legal system. But more than anything, having somebody who almost certainly doesn't have a whole lot of training in that make that decision feels kind of like it's a lack of faith in that system because you let our sort of temporary monarch come in and just kind of do whatever he wants with it. Um, Sort of. I don't know that I, I totally agree. But one, one of the things that you're – you're raising as a an issue was raised as an issue um, back in the first constitutional convention, and it's been raised as an issue over time. If the judicial system is expected to do X, Y, and Z, and the president has the ability to come in and go, nope, I changed my mind, that in some way erodes the ability of the courts and judges to do their job. Yeah. And that, I think that's a totally, totally valid point, but the system isn't perfect and sometimes um, people get convicted who shouldn't or sometimes people get convicted who don't necessarily need to be punished and I've got a lot of examples of of different things that we can talk about uh, about this but at the end of the day it's it's an imperfect system and there needs to be some ability for somebody to fix a wrong that's in there. Yeah and I'm not saying that there aren't pardons that should have happened to correct something that went wrong. But don't you feel like it's, I guess my point is just, it's a little weird, isn't it? That you have all of these layers of people who look at it, of all the review we just talked about. And then if a president just sort of decides one day, yeah, these prisons are kind of expensive. Why don't we just close them all, pardon every single person in the whole country? That'd be totally fine, right? You know, the comeback I have to that though, is this this idea of the presidential pardon has existed since long before there was a president. It goes back to like the 1200s. And I, I stopped trying to look before Britain because that's a long time ago. Well, okay, there's a, isn't the, the, the Barabbas Jesus thing? That's a pardon, isn't it? Oh, I guess technically. That's the I, oldest one I'll, I'll know about. That Technically it is, I think. I didn't but, go back that far. But I mean, it, is the history of it then, does it go back to sort of this sort of like this populist gift to the people of, I mean, like in that case, right and wrong didn't seem to matter in the biblical story. But I mean, I imagine in a lot of cases, it's to try to get the favor of people by making it kind of a high profile situation. Maybe. I, what, at least in terms of the presidency, what's happened is it's a high profile decision that has uh, worked against the people that have granted the pardons. Um, and that's the prime example that I can come up with is Lincoln and Nixon, who there's there's very big cases about Nixon was the one that was pardoned. He couldn't he didn't pardon himself though. It would have been an interesting discussion if he had. Um, Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But um, if we go back in time, there was a fun phrase for it: um, the royal prerogative of mercy. Okay. Back in British days, and the idea was only in cases where somebody is going to be put to death and they've been convicted, does the judge have the ability, to, or the, the president, monarch, whatever you want to call him, have the ability to say, no, 
this person doesn't get put to death. That's kind of exactly what happened with Jesus and Barabbas was one of them was going to get put to death, and whatever Pontius Pilate was had the ability to say, no, yeah. one of you isn't, one of you is. Right. Um, well, it's, okay, so in that case, though, is it like they go free as opposed to getting put to death, or you're just stopping an execution? So it it depends. In the United States, there's there's a couple of different types of what we would call pardons. Um, but the pardon that we think of, the president says, this person is pardoned, I absolve you. And from a legal standpoint, it's as if they were never even convicted of the crime. In Britain, the story is different. You have to be convicted. It doesn't take away the conviction. It takes away the punishment. And here, that's what we call clemency. But in some respects, there's pros and cons to both. Because if somebody did actually murder somebody, it might be a good idea to have on their record, this person was found guilty of murder and take away certain other rights and privileges that that person might have versus a pardon. If you say, yes, you are pardoned, you murdered somebody, but you're still now allowed to go back to society and be a full-fledged member of society, even though you committed a bad crime. Even if you actually did it, you're treated as if you were never convicted, never found guilty, it never happened kind of thing. Yeah. And th- there's, there's a lot of case law throughout um, the United States history of the Supreme Court saying we need to be different than the way that Britain does it. I don't know if the way the United States does it is better. I only have experience on this side. I don't know if the grass is greener over there. Um, there's there's some issues that might that could come up. Um, you know, if let's say President Trump had tried to pardon himself and he had actually committed crimes that would have kept him from office, well, he would allow himself to run again. Right. Um, or if he's convicted of something. And whoever Joe Biden's successor is, because I don't think Biden will pardon him, says, okay, uh, Trump, you're pardoned. He can run again. Versus in Britain, whatever he's convicted of, you know, even if he did it and gets pardoned, he wouldn't be able to run again if whatever the conviction was was something that keeps you from public office. Okay. I want to go all the way back, and then let's build back to this context. Okay. Because you've given us a good modern framing. Okay. But if we go to – so that Continental Congress – they're deciding what's this country going to look like. Yep. And at some point they say, you know what? I think this whole pardon thing worked out pretty well. Why don't we take that? Let's 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 keep that in the new thing. So I I, I am not a great researcher of primary sources. So it was really hard for me to find this this information because I didn't know where to look. But what I was able to find was bits and pieces of like the text of the minutes from the Constitutional Convention. And the first person to propose the idea of the pardon was Alexander Hamilton. Mm. And Alexander Hamilton... Did he propose it in a song? <laughs> no, unfortunately. But he, he was also one that advocated for the United States being a monarchy. And the idea comes from the British prerogative of mercy. So the connection makes sense. So he, he, this is more like, yeah, our king should be able to pardon people like the king and Exactly. This... And, Guy it was necessarily like the president should have this right. new idea. Okay. We're trying to get away from the king, but let's make a new king right. kind of thing. Um, the, the Constitutional Convention has a very strenuous debate about 
um, the ability of the pardon. Not necessarily whether or not they should or shouldn't have the pardon. They all seemed to agree on that. It was the actual terms of what the Constitution will say for what the president can do for a pardon. Why did they all agree on that? It's By that point in 1787, the pardon, as far as I could find, had been around for like 600 years. So it's just normal. Really. Yeah. It's, okay. it's just been part of the system since the dawn of time. Although I would argue they're there to deconstruct what is considered normal in government. Wasn't that the whole operation? I, you know, I, I think that's a romanticized view. To an extent, I don't. And I've Can you elaborate I've on that? knocked the founding fathers a number of times already. I don't. Think I like that you're here to you know make enemies on this show. Well, yeah. So can you can you expand on that? I, I don't expect Alexander Hamilton's going to come up behind me at any point to stab me in the back. Fortunately, um, but the I think the founding fathers are are romanticized in that people believe that they're creating this brand new great thing. And to an extent, they did, but many of the principles that they put into our system, they borrowed from other systems. They didn't just snap their fingers and magically develop an entire government. They said, okay, we're going to take this from here, this from here, this from here, and took bits and pieces of um, different governments that they had seen. And many of the members of the Constitutional Convention were very well-read English school-trained scholars who took a lot of our system from the British government. So to an extent, we were trying to get away from them and be different from them, but uh, I don't think we were trying to radically be different from them. Okay. And so what the, what the framers ultimately, and I, I got the exact quote, what they ultimately landed on in Article 2 is, he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States except in cases of impeachment. So somebody like Antonin Scalia might read that and say, no woman can become president because it does That's say, originalism, right? Yes. There. Yep. But the, the textualist interpretation of that is what has um, been upheld since day one. The par- president can only pardon you for crimes and, and they cannot pardon you for any state offenses. So it has to be an offense against the United States, and it can't be a civil case. That I couldn't find, and I wanted to, I couldn't find an instance of somebody trying to pardon somebody else for a civil case. I thought that'd be very interesting, like if Bill Clinton had tried to pardon OJ. It didn't happen. Couldn't find it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Worsner about the history of the presidential pardon. So when they do that, there's a, there's a faith that the president will be fairly will will use it in moderation. Yeah, by giving because that that's a big power to give somebody. Absolutely. Um, so the the first instance that I could find of it was the whiskey rebellion, which Ooh. I I knew the name. I'd never bothered to look into it before. <laughs> I had no idea if we learned about it in school, um, but that was during George Washington's presidency. I almost said reign, which is not the right word. Um, well, uh, I mean, Alexander Hamilton Alexander, made that same mistake. Yeah. Well, he was never president. He may have reigned if he wanted to. Um, so there was a new tax that was imposed to on, on whiskey and other distilled spirits to pay for the Revolutionary War. And as Americans so loved to do, they were literally up in arms about the fact that they had to pay taxes. 
and there were there were people killed and George Washington said okay I'm going to bring the army in because this is what George Washington does and the as soon as the army showed up the rebels said ha just kidding guys sorry we're going to go back to distilling we're going to go pay some taxes and buy right. a drink I and so the, the fun part about it was most of the people who were convicted of not paying their taxes uh, had their had their sentences overturned and most of the people who were um, tried were acquitted. So I'm guessing most of the people involved never actually paid the tax. But there were there were a couple people, I think two, who were convicted and were sentenced to death by hanging. And throughout most of the history of the United States, the punishment for treason has been death and not death or fine, oh, death or prison, just death. And Alexander Hamilton, who proposed the idea of the pardon, said, well, man, these guys need to hang. We, we got to be done with them. <laughs> and he, as he so loved to do, he wrote articles in like the Boston paper or whatever and said, well, we got to go crush and kill all these rebels. Come on. And then anybody who who's convicted, they got to hang. And George Washington uh, pardoned the only people who were actually convicted and sentenced to death. Those um, cases weren't argued before the Supreme Court that I could find. Um, and, and I think there, there may have been um, some extenuating circumstances. I'm not totally sure. I think the only two people sentenced to death um, may have been disabled in some way. And so I think the, I think George Washington actually literally took mercy on them like the, the old times. But couldn't find a lot interesting that happened between that point and the Civil War. <laughs> well, so that that's weird, isn't it? I mean... Um, not really, because uh, not not a lot happened with the judiciary until like 1812. You mean not a lot of convictions happened? or N- Not a lot of cases that went up to the Supreme Court. But, sh- I mean, I and guess... Things were slow in the old times, though. Yeah. I mean, but, I mean, just the, just the level of, like, if you are president, you can... Like your, if your friends also have committed, if your friends with people who've committed crimes, you can throw a, a pardon at them, right? And that that wasn't happening. Hey, not really. And that was one of the things that they were worried about was we're trying to investigate somebody who has information on the president because the president has done something wrong. The president could preemptively pardon that person and say, "No, you don't have to testify. No, you don't have to do anything to cover up their own guilt." That was in the minutes of them saying, yes, this is a thing that we're worried about. Yeah. And they just – they were like, nah, I don't – I think it will be fine. Well, so they put in there accepting cases of impeachment and nothing else. But that – I mean that's, that's vague, right? They – I think it's one of the few clauses in the Constitution that is exceptionally definitive. Most of the Constitution is super vague. But this says – and the way that I read it is you can pardon somebody for – any crime against the United States, doesn't matter if it's before or after conviction, as long as they're not being charged with or as long as it's not an impeachment case. And I, 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 they could have said 25 million different things, but they didn't. So this is what we've got. So, okay, I know we're going vaguely chronologically, but to bring – I mean the, the, probably the best case to talk about that with would be Nixon, right? 
No. No? Nixon's nowhere near as interesting as the cases in the Civil War were. Really? Okay. All right. All right. Never mind then. You, you, you take the reins. I'll sit so, back. Not sure if, you, if you've heard about this before, but in the 1860s, many of the southern states seceded from the Union. <laughs> I've heard about this, yes. They they fought a whole war over this, actually. Yeah. And They're still fighting it, some people think. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see, you know, if, if Trump comes back to power. Anyway. Um, so... At the time, President Lincoln had said, I'll more or less do anything to bring the Union back together and issued a number of proclamations that said, if you swear an oath to the United States, I will pardon you from any crimes, which I think is so fantastically ridiculous that, okay, I committed actual treason. All I have to do is swear an oath and I get away with it. But the old times were different. Um, so as the Civil War is going on, Lincoln is issuing pardons to people because he doesn't – and this is, I guess, the way that I in, interpret it. He thinks logistically it would be difficult to hang like every person in the South who committed treason. Well, and there's the symbolic element to that decision right. as well, which right. is it looks pretty bad. Yeah. And, you know, he he wants the nation to move on and move forward and doesn't see – hanging all of these people as the way to do it. That's what King George might have done. It's not what George Washington did. And it's not what Lincoln was going to do. The public didn't like this. And his vice president, Andrew Johnson, didn't like this. And Andrew Johnson was interviewed a number of times saying, oh, that, that chicken Lincoln, I don't know why he keeps, he keeps letting all these people off the hook. Well, um, I'm not sure if you're aware either, but Lincoln was ultimately assassinated and, <laughs> and Johnson takes over. But Johnson quickly changes course because he realizes, oh, shoot, Lincoln was on to something. But so you can't undo a pardon. Like, for example, if he says there's 100 people that Lincoln pardoned who I disagree with, that's, that's done. Yep, right? that's final. Yeah, okay. But during the intervening years of the Civil War, Congress had passed laws that said um, – um, among other things, if you took up arms for the South, you can't be a lawyer before the big-ass Supreme Court. You can't be sworn in before the, the bar of the Supreme Court. And there were lawyers in the South who wanted to practice and couldn't. And it was making it very logistically difficult for the administration of justice if half the lawyers in the country weren't allowed to practice anymore. And so this particular lawyer petitioned the um, the president, President Johnson, and said, hey, this isn't fair. This law says I can't practice l law anymore. That's a weird phrasing. Um, and Johnson said, yep, you're right. I pardon you so that you can practice law. And there was a big case. There were 25 different things that, that came out of this case that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. But there was a really good quote from that case that talks about the pardon. And you're going to love this. Okay. I'm going right, right, to read yeah, right I'm from ready. this. In In Re Garland... The Supreme Court said the power thus conferred is unlimited with the exception stated. It extends to every offense known to law and may be exercised at any time after its commission, either before legal proceedings are taken or during their pendency or after conviction and judgment. This power of the president is not subject to legislative control. It doesn't get any more unequivocal than that. Yeah. and Some Alexander Hamilton fans in there. Exactly. And that case has not – that holding has not been overturned. So that is the law. 
I interpret that to flash forward today to mean a lot of very interesting and different things for the modern presidents that we have. Like I mentioned before, though, the effect of the pardon is to treat it as if the conviction never happened. Mm -hmm. So civil war happens, interesting, great. Nothing else interesting happens until Richard Nixon. So I'm not sure if you're aware, but (laughs) Nixon was one of our many presidents and was alleged to have done a number of things wrong. What were some of those things? Just... If I'm not aware of Nixon, I might need a little more context, right? (laughs) You know, Nixon always sort of maintained that he really didn't do anything wrong, but it appeared that what he did was direct his cronies to break into his political opponent's office to steal information about them that would help him in the upcoming election. The fun and fanciful part about that is polls at the time showed he was going to win, so he didn't need to do it. And then once the investigation into him started he went ahead and started firing people so that he didn't have to actually get in trouble for what he did. And he told David Frost, if the president does it, it's not illegal, right? (laughs) And it sounds like uh, the Supreme Court agrees with him. It appears so. And so the the situation that Nixon is presented with is you're going to get impeached, it's not going to be fun, or you can resign. And his vice president is Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, who is a Yale law grad, so he knows the law. The revisionist history is that um, Gerald Ford did not have a deal where if Nixon resigned, he would pardon him. Um, I found a lot of people who contemporarily said, well, there must have been some kind of a backdoor deal between these two people. Uh, Everything modern that I can find is, no, that didn't happen. So Nixon resigns, and Gerald Ford says, okay, I want the country to move on. I want to be over and done with this. Nothing good's going to come of Nixon being tried or convicted or anything of anything. So I think I'm going to pardon him. He goes to see Nixon, and Nixon's like, dude, I've got this terrible condition called phlebitis. I don't know what it is, but my doctors say if I don't have this surgery, I'm going to die, and I might still die anyway. And if I'm going to die, it's going to be really soon. Gerald Ford says, gosh, dude, that's really sad. I I think I'm going to pardon you. Gerald Ford does go back and pardon Nixon, and immediately his ratings tank. And that's the same thing that happened to Lincoln. People said, gosh, what a a terrible decision that you're making to forgive all these people for all their wrongs. And Ford loses his reelection bid to Carter because of this. He loses like 20 or 30 points in the polls or in the approval ratings right off the bat because of this. All right, hold on, hold on a second. Is there a theory why Nixon didn't pardon himself, or try it at least? Um, it, it appeared that he had been presented by the Justice Department with something that said you could. And I suspect President Trump was presented with the same thing, something that said you can do it, but there's going to be a challenge to it. Spoiler alert. I think the president can pardon himself. Based on the ruling from the Civil War. And, and every ruling ever since. There, I mean, that what you read, that quote, unlimited is the concept. Yeah, and there's there are other cases that, that say that in a different phrasing, but they all say the president at any time can pardon anybody for anything as long as it's not impeachment. There's nothing in there that says except himself. And but, but Nixon didn't want to pull the trigger on that. 
I, I don't think so. I think he probably realized that the public sentiment towards him was so bad, people were likely to challenge it. And if he was sick, he probably didn't want to go through and deal with all that kind of stuff. But so then when when Ford pardons him, that does sort of set the modern precedent of any president's mistakes, sins, for the most part, we're just going to kind of move on. We're not really going to go after anything they did wrong. Because I remember conversations like this have happened about war crimes throughout you know, the 90s, 2000s. And every president who comes in kind of has said, like, you know, maybe we'll pay, pay some lip service to that. But we're not really going to go after anybody. We're just going to look forward. Right. Rightfully or wrongfully, that, that has been the trend. the trend. What's interesting about Gerald Ford, though, is it appears he immediately regretted the decision. <laughs> and I, I read that he actually would carry around a card in his wallet that said a quote from something about if you accept the pardon, that's an admission of guilt. Yeah. Now, legally, that doesn't make any sense. because oh, you, sh- you should tell Twitter that because they, they run with that one all the time. Well, I don't care about Twitter. <laughs> I don't think about Twitter at all. <laughs> all right. Never mind. Because the court has said, if you are pardoned, it's as if the conviction never happened. So you can't be guilty of a crime you weren't convicted for. But their point, I guess, is to be pardoned, you have there is something being pardoned. I suppose, but you. But can, it's meaningless. You can pardon point. somebody who's innocent, who was found guilty but didn't do it. So I, I think it goes both ways. Well, I guess they pardon a turkey every year. And the right. Turkey hasn't Turkeys done don't do anything yeah. wrong. They're, they don't taste good, but that's not their fault. <laughs> so he had a card like he would give people a card? I, well, if he carried it in his wallet, I'm assuming he just had the one. I, you know, I, kinda, I kind of imagined it like some guy in World War II with his rosary on Omaha Beach. Like every time Gerald Ford was in trouble, he would like clutch this card that said that he was a good person. <laughs> Well, so it sounds like people were coming up off the street and, like, yelling at him about pardoning Maybe. Nixon. And they takes out his card and reads his statement. You know, towards towards the end, Gerald Ford didn't look great. But he was a stud football player and was really tall and really muscular. So I don't know I, that I would approach him on the street and try to harass him. Okay. I, I welcome anybody to try. <laughs> I think he thought he made the wrong decision. But my opinion is if, if he wanted to do it, he could. Mm-hmm. And history has shown that every president that has pardoned somebody has said, we need to move on. Nothing good is going to be served from this person actually being convicted or, or actually being punished for this particular crime. And there's other avenues that the president could have used. He could have said, OK, we're going to let you go through trial. We're going to let the people see Nixon testify about whatever. And then I'm going to grant you clemency and completely commute whatever sentence that you get. He had that option. He didn't do it. And I didn't go to Yale. He's a, a Yale law grad. He, he knows what his options are. And he, he chose what he chose. And the, the framers had the ability to make this whatever they wanted. And they chose it a certain way for a certain reason. So I, I think he totally acted within the bounds of what the Constitution says he can and can't do. There's, there's never really been a movement against the pardon, right? I mean... I think there's been um, some talk about it recently, and I think if Trump had tried to pardon himself, I- I'm sure the-, the tweets would have been ablaze with people saying, <laughs> we need to do away with, with the pardon. Well, but th- to do away with it is a, is a tall order when you've got a 50-50 Senate. I, it never going to happen. I, and, my, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, the Constitution is never going to get amended again. It takes way too many votes 
it takes a two-thirds majority, and you got to have all these states yeah. that have to sign on. Never I mean, going to happen. It's tough to get a vote on infrastructure, let alone right. constitutional amendments. Or canceling my student loans. Yeah. I, I mean, that I think needs to happen because I'm doing a public good <laughs> informing people about the Constitution. I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about the history of the presidential pardon and how its evolution leaves big questions for our country going forward. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll be back with more of the conversation with Matthew Worsner after this break. My parents were what you'd call wandering souls. I must have lived in a half dozen places before I was two years old. But eventually, my family wandered into this little sawmill town called Walden in northern Colorado. My mom says the town was really kind of hip back then. She'd put me and my brother in a little red wagon and pull us downtown. When we moved there in 74, there was a lot going on. There was um, an art supply store. There was a health food store. There was a hardware store right on Main Street. I remember the... uh ice cream parlor and toy store. Yeah, and and your dad immediately started playing music with the rhythm wrestlers. The town welcomed us in, and for the first time, we settled down. But by the time I went to college, Walden was changing, fast. The town mayor, Jim Dustin, describes what happened. It used to have a sawmill, it used to have a uh, coal mine. It used to have a railroad. All those things went away. And even a recent fracking boom didn't revive things. And now my hometown has shrunk to nearly half as many people as when I was a kid. I wondered just how small can a town shrink before it just disappears? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Today I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about the presidential pardon, its history, development, and implications for the future of the United States of America. The thing that's crazy to me is from the beginning, if we sort of have this power that's waiting to be bent to maybe a breaking point, or maybe there is no breaking point, that there's been enough restraint that we haven't ever gotten to the point of either a self-pardon or just pardons that are so egregious that we have a serious conversation about the whole thing. So the January 6th, whatever you call it. what I, the, I, the tour, I believe, is what one side is calling it. Insurrection is what the, the other in, side the is insurrection. calling it. Insurrection. And it's on the, you can watch uh, C-SPAN right now and get some firsthand accounts from people who were there. So what I think is interesting, the... January 6th insurrection, whatever it was or wasn't, if President Trump had actually incited and told these people, okay, storm the Capitol so you can take over, is that better or worse than the whole Civil War? The reason I ask the question is Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, he was pardoned. He did not get hung, even though he literally led actual troops with cannons and bombs and hot air balloons, whatever else they fight wars with, 
I, that's about as treason as it comes, and he got pardoned. So I, I think even if Trump had done what uh, he's alleged to have done, the historical precedent is that Biden should have pardoned him for it. So uh, the calculation then with Jefferson Davis presumably was in the interest of surrender. Then you the pardon was granted because the surrender had already occurred. Right. Not, like if Davis had fought to the bitter end, there might have been a different calculus, right? Right. And that's it's really not the American way either because that's what, what King George would have done is said, okay, I'm going to cut all your guys' heads off because I'm King George. Um, it, it's kind of the approach that we took in World War II of saying, okay, you guys need to unconditionally surrender and then tried a bunch of people and killed them. Uh, but it, it, at least it matters internally. We've said, okay, you did wrong, but we forgive you for it. We're going to move on. And I, I'm a softie. I think that that's the better approach. I, I don't think that any anything is served by us saying, okay, Jefferson Davis, we're going to cut your head off. Sorry, buddy. I, I don't think that helps the nation move on. Uh, that helps develop the monarchy that we were trying to avoid. And so speaking of developing the monarchy we were trying to avoid, or to, to avoid, um, if we – if Maybe let's divorce it from specific presidents. But the second you have a president decide, I can pardon myself for anything, you're kind of in this amoral, monarchic territory, aren't you? Um, maybe. The president is also judicially immune from conviction f- against his, uh, or I think it's even trial for his like official actions while he's president. Um that's not to say that the president can't be sued for something. Bill Clinton was sued for a, a host of different interesting things um, during his presidency. But I think there's more than one avenue built into the system besides the pardon to kind of try to shield the president from prosecution and conviction from things that they did wrong. Uh, the flip side of that is the Constitution built in the mechanism by which we redress our grievances against the president. And that's the impeachment. We, we specifically set up the system this particular way for a reason. And if the Constitutional Congress wanted it a different way, they would have done it a different way. The, the impeachment is built on the idea that each side would prefer not to have a monarch who's on their side. Um, I guess. I, I think, y- you know, I think the impeachment is a tad bit ridiculous which is a, is a, is a fun, um, controversial thing to say towards the latter end of the show. But I, who, who decided that Congress is, is in charge of these things? That, that's, a, that, that's a complaint I've seen a lot of people bring up because kind of like what I was saying at the beginning in my sort of build to the concept of the pardon, Congress, there are some lawyers in Congress, but it is all sort of this big theatrical exercise because it's Congress as opposed to a trial. Right. And, and at least Congress, to an extent, has to go through certain parliamentary rule. I guess I shouldn't say parliamentary. They have to go through rules and they have some pretty ridiculous hoops that they have to jump through to actually get certain things done. And a lot of those procedural things prevent them from getting things done. But I don't think that by its nature bestows them with the right to undo my vote as a citizen. I, if, if that was the case, um, I would like to see more congressmen and congresswomen get impeached and have 
other people's votes undone. This is something I've thought about because impeachment is fairly toothless, it seems like, in the point where, like you were saying about constitutional amendments, it's difficult to get super majorities that do any meaningful action. Um, but if if it was like regular that every president or almost every president was like removed because of an impeachment for something improper they did, then it would matter and then it would seem to have the kind of deterrence that like any sort of punishment for a crime has. But it doesn't seem like there's really any deterrence from doing anything wrong when you're president built into the system. Um, to an extent. And I think that that's a good thing, though. I think the... The president shouldn't be afraid to act. The president shouldn't be afraid to do something. And even if you make a decision and it's the wrong decision, it's better than not making a decision at all. So that that is saying the president is above the law, then. That is kind of the Nixonian approach. Well, no, because if the president makes a decision that's so bad and so egregious, um, then they should be removed and should be impeached. I don't know if I don't know how to square those ideas. Though. Oh God, I don't know either. Um, it's built what that your concept is built on this belief that the president will make the right decision most of the time. Um, yeah, and I, I think with with a few small exceptions, that's kind of what's happened. So Mo- that's it's an inherent faith in the system, then. Yeah, I, and I this is the system that we've had that's worked since the 1790s. I, I mean, if if we didn't like it, we've had a lot of time to try to change it. And I'm not sure why we didn't change it. The only thing I can come up with is we like the system because it works. That's why we haven't changed it. So, but we've, we've also established that you, you, you can't really change it because of dysfunction within the system, that, which disallows for the mechanism for change. Not necessarily. It's the Constitution has been changed many times. Why is it that there won't be another constitutional amendment? Uh, Twitter. Twitter's what did it. So, so there is dysfunction within the system, though. I, I, it's external factors that have destroyed the system um, or, or made it not work. It's not the system's fault. No, but, but the result is the system not working. Isn't that what you're saying? Uh, maybe, but... What's the, what's the effect from that then? Do do we undo everything and start over again? Well, we don't have these conversations because we argue about Dr. Seuss. So I don't know. I I don't know either, and I um I don't do the web very often, so I'm I'm not really a good judge of what it's like to be on Facebook. Yeah. But my perception is it's really bad. And what I would like to see is a world where we don't have those things anymore. And then we can argue and debate about whether or not the judicial system and pardons work. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Worsner about the implications of the presidential pardon going forward for our country. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to strip all all the external stuff away. Uh, Assume that there are people in Congress who have genuine conversations. They're open to change, just like the Continental Congress had to sort of make compromises and figure out things based on a lot of disparity of opinions. In a perfect world, perfect country here, do you think the pardon's a good idea? Yes. Why? Um, I guess what do you mean perfect? Does does every every decision that's ever made by the court come out the right way? Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, there's going to be human error, let's say. There, there, humans are still humans. Yeah. I, I Even if the system is perfect, there's still going to be ways it's not perfect. And so, yeah, I think you need to have the pardon. Um, y- you know, people were able to vote uh, not guilty for OJ. So you can make mistakes every now and then, I guess. Now, 
do you think that there should be limitations on the concept of the pardon? Um, no. So, I, you, like, the president being able to pardon himself, herself, I guess, himself in the... Uh, it has to be a he. In the Hamilton. Hillary room. never could have been president. <laughs> According, yeah, in our originalist approach here. So you think a self-pardon is not a bad idea in, in just conceptually? Uh, no, I, th- I think it's okay. Um, I, I think in practice, there's probably a few, very, very few times where it would actually work out well, and it very well may be that there's never an opportunity that arises in the real world where it's okay. But um, I, I think it's, it's easy to not see the, the forest for the trees sometimes as, as a citizen. And um, I, I think we maybe can be a little myopic. And I'd like to have romanticized the president and imagine that he or she has the ability to see things differently. And if they make an unpopular decision that people ultimately turn on them for, Okay, if they pardon themselves for it, but they had a good reason, I'm okay with that, I guess. Interesting. Yeah, that that's a pretty sci-fi young adult novel way of, of looking at it, but <laughs> I, I don't know. Anything's possible. Were there other things in your research here that we didn't come across that are just good anecdotes related to pardons? Um, not really. Did we cover it all, really? Um, so w- one thing that we didn't really cover – but I, that I thought was an interesting and fun hypothetical. So the, what, what has transpired is the president has the ability to pardon somebody for contempt of court. Okay. So if, if you go into court and you do something wrong and the judge says, if you don't turn over that discovery by Friday, I'm putting you in jail, the president has the ability to go, ha, no. Well, most people know uh, contempt of court from my cousin Vinny, I believe, in the way that he was disrespectful for the judge to the judge and had to spend several nights in prison or in jail and uh, ultimately wanted to because it was so noisy, right? You know, I've I've never had the opportunity to to live that out. I don't know that I necessarily want it. it like in, in this case, I believe he was held in contempt for not dressing appropriately, and the judge thought that was enough, right? It, you know, if if you go down to county court on any given Tuesday um, in Douglas County, you will be shocked by how many people are dressed in ways you would not expect. The lawyers? Court. Too? Uh, yeah, lawyers okay. and, and the citizens alike. So things have changed since my cousin Vinny. But anyway, sorry, I just I distracted you. So you have the ability to be absolved by the president from contempt of court. And contempt is one of the things that is used to enforce discovery, deadlines, so on and so forth. And it's the judge's ability to force you to do something. So imagine, if you will, a president is being uh, investigated for doing something wrong. And as part of that investigation, there are people who have been sued and subpoenaed and all different kinds of things to turn over evidence against the president. The um, president has the ability to undo that that contempt that's been ordered against a particular person. And the president has done that historically. That is the greatest way the president can undermine the judicial system because it completely takes away the judge's ability to maintain order in the courtroom. One of the things that the Constitutional Convention was expressly worried about, and they all seemed to agree about it, was the president has the ability to obstruct an investigation against him or herself. And they didn't put in language that prevented him from doing that or her from doing that. 
And what has actually played out is there have been presidents that have done that to prevent investigations. Um, not necessarily that I could find directly against themselves, but one of the things that they were worried about that the founders didn't do anything about has actually come true. Um, again, proving my point that the founding fathers were not geniuses and the, the Constitution is not the greatest document in the entire world. But, hey, it's what we've got. Well, so you, you give me all these things that make me feel judgmental and pessimistic, and then you, you package it in this like, no, yeah, but I think we're all basically doing what we're supposed to do, and I think it's all fine. Most, most people are good people, though. And w- what often happens with, with lawyers, I only see people at their worst. I see them when their mom has died, their dad has died, when they're fighting over money. I don't do divorces, but, you know, a divorce lawyer only ever sees people at their unhappiest. And that that doesn't define um, who a person is necessarily, but that's all that ever makes its way into the law and into the textbooks is this is the worst of humanity. And so it's easy to look at the law and the judicial system in a vacuum and say, oh, God, everybody sucks. Well, look at all this. But it, most of human interaction is not people arguing and fighting, though. And so I, I think if left to their own devices, presidents will be good people for the most part. And uh, they, the same thing is true for the average citizen. So, yeah, there's a lot of bad that, that's out there in the world, but there's a lot of good as well. Did it say in the minutes who, was, uh, the pe- who were the people persuading the others in the Continental Congress to uh – leave some of these loopholes unmentioned. So let me tell you what, actually. I saw these names I didn't recognize. I go, I don't know them. I'm not writing their names down. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. (laughs) So we're going to leave that as uh, – that's something that other people can look into. Yeah, that's for a historian. It's a a homework assignment for the listeners. Yeah. Figure it out for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm doing a good service here. I, I'm, I'm getting people interested in becoming more educated about the Constitution. If that's not a selling point for canceling my student loans, I don't know what it's. <laughs> All right. Well, Matthew Wersner, the most returned guest on the show, thank you for coming back. I appreciate this. I, I love it. You're a pro. This is a lot of fun. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Novlock.